This podcast is recorded in front of an unwitting audience. This is True Crime Kent. And we're back up episode 50 of True Crime Kent. Almost to 100. As Adele once said, oh, we're halfway there. Is Adele like somebody in your neighborhood or? Oh, living on a prayer. Take my hand. We'll make it, I swear. Oh, we are halfway there. I don't think Adele said that. That was one of them. Anyways, today, Op, you know what? Before we, I'm not doing, we got a long outline here, a lot to cover today. We're not doing it, going to do the irrelevant question, that bit that usually doesn't work. But (laughs) I should put a trigger warning here for one thing in particular. I should, but I think it's more fun for the triggers to sneak up on you, the listener. Yeah. So I'm not going to. It would ruin the surprise. That's what trigger warnings are. Spoilers. For me, not giving trigger warnings is akin to throwing a surprise birthday party for someone. Only instead of throwing confetti and balloons, we're throwing rotten meat and camel shit. (laughs) And that's a lot of fun. Yeah. So fuck your triggers. Yeah. Okay. And I think the reason that I feel this way is because I've been watching a lot of true crime documentaries lately on YouTube, and now they're censoring and editing out words, not even editing out, they're, they're bleeping words like kill and rape, which is ridiculous and stupid. If you've got a problem with the words kill and rape, the words, just the words and hearing them, you probably shouldn't be fucking watching true crime stuff. I noticed that in transcripts and in like the text descriptions on Instagram and stuff like that, they'll they'll misspell the words. And I don't know if they're trying to like avoid bots or whatever, but you know, they like I, I saw one the other day, it was like twelve year old girl and then they misspelled the word rapes. So it was like all fu- funky. I mean, you you knew what she you know what they wrote, but it didn't spell rapes. And then it was like party clown at restaurant. So it just sounded like she got into a rap battle with a party clown at a restaurant. Yeah, exactly. Raps, raps, party clown. Girl girl raps, party clown. Yeah. And that's probably why it showed up in my feed because I have tags set up for uh, one of my tags in Instagram is hashtag all the greatest latest raps. Okay, so I am happy to say that there's not a single rape in this episode. Is there any not rap? One. There's not so much as even a finger penetration. <laughs> not even like not even down to one knuckle. Nobody catches a finger or a tongue or a dildo or a dick. Not one in this whole story. So I am happy to say that there is that. Uh, but there is plenty of murder. Mm. And as far as the triggers go, I'll let them just kind of pop out at you like a funhouse clown. The only trigger that I really wish that you could provide at the beginning, it's selfish, I, I understand. But if we go back in time to reflect upon your, your experiences at Ibiza, if you could just let me know ahead of time. Uh, the, the gay club that I used to go to all the time in Wilmington, North Carolina, for those that are new to the show. Yeah. Yes. One of my favorite places to go. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, if we're going back there in the Even though I'm not gay, I don't think. If we're going back there in the story, just heads up me. 
because I have to like put on a totally different like set of spiritual armor for. Okay. Yeah, we're not even going to. There's no gay sex, and there's no sex. Period. In this whole story, in the oh. entire story, there's no sex. Boring. <laughs> Because this right? killer that we're talking today, talking about today, was not driven by sex. In fact, out of everything I've read about him, I think maybe he might have even been asexual. I don't think he was interested in sex. I don't think it was something that he thought about or worried about. He does. He got, he does get braggadocious on occasion in some hard to find, more hard to find interviews that he was uh, promiscuous and he had he had bad ladies. But in general, just not really something that he was interested in. Okay. All right, and and but that's a presumption because um, you're just saying I don't know if he's interested in sex because the I'm just I'm presuming because devoid. it's just not something that he yeah he just you know usually serial killers are driven by by penises or vaginas and trying to just go out there and just get penises and vaginas that's what Jeffrey Dahmer was doing he was out there trying to get big black penises yeah. and like or Ed Gein was trying to get dead vaginas or you know uh, Ted Bundy was trying to get all the vaginas but no there's no drive here whatsoever by vaginas or penises at all okay um, I think if he saw a vagina or a penis our subject today would look at it the same way you would look at like a bowling ball I really want to take comfort in everything you're saying, but I kind of feel like you're, when it comes to you trying to give comfort in these situations, I feel like I'm on a paper route and I'm like nine and it's 630 in the morning and you got out of a van like two blocks up and you're a little old, you're 12. You're walking back to me. You're like, Hey, hey, I'm a cool kid. Hey, it's 630 in the morning. Hey, what are you doing? And I'm like paper out. And you're like, Hey, um, you want to come play some free video Do some heroin? And then I'm like, eh, okay. And then I just drop my bag right there and I leave like right. one shoe. And then we get in the van and then you just immediately start shooting me up with uh, d- drugs. And before I know it, I'm in the sex trade. Yeah. And that's fun. You'll you'll understand if I'm a little apprehensive about you saying there's no sex in this or whatever. Okay. All right. There literally isn't. Not once. Sure. I'm getting in the van. In the I'm entire not, story. I'm not not getting in the van. I'm just saying okay. I'm apprehensive about it. Today, uh, we're talking about a serial killer, uh, notorious over-the-sea serial killer. He, he was kind of the Richard Ramirez of the UK, and his name was Patrick Mackay. And his name is spelled M-A-C-K-A-Y. And the way it's pronounced in every in every documentary and everything is Mackay, but I am going to say McKay because that's what I'm looking at, Mackay. But it's pronounced Mackay. Get off my nuts if you're one of those grammar Nazis that's like, it's pronounced Mackay, bitch, I know. But I have to say this word 40 million times. It looks like McKay, Patrick McKay. That was probably one of the most intense friendships I ever had, actually. When I lived in Springfield, Missouri, I had a friend and he was very, very shy about talking about his, um, his family. Uh, he came from Germany, uh, had a German accent because his parents were like native. But uh, come to find out, one of the reasons he was really ha- uh, apprehensive was because he literally had a grandma Nazi um, 
in his in his past. And wow. I, and it, and so I know what you mean. Get off my nuts if you've got that kind of past. And if I had known that, I wouldn't have befriended him as much. He had a grandma Nazi. Yeah, just like you said, you know, like, get off my nuts if you're a grandma Nazi. That's kind of like you could have like a an Idaho version of apt pupil. I can yeah. see a young operator befriending a grandma Nazi and then blackmailing her for meatballs. Yes. Because the Bible doesn't frown on that, I don't think. Right. As long as money's not involved. Yep. Yeah, it would take place in an Ikea. Yeah. You know what? Now, I'm going to stop Patrick, interrupting you, though, because I you're got fine. an email. You're doing fine. You're doing fine, buddy. You're doing good, and you look good, and you are good enough. I got an email, so I'm not going to interrupt everybody you as else. much. Okay. He was called the Monster of Belgravia. Ooh. The Devil's Disciple. The Psychopath. Not which is unimaginative. Not really. Not um, very creative. Patty Pussy Pants. Okay, that was good. Okay, uh, that, that wasn't right. He, nobody called him Patty Pussy Pants. But he had a lot of nicknames because he was a real nutcase. And Patrick David Mackay was born at the Central Middlesex Hospital in London on September 20th. Hang on. I haven't even got one fucking sentence. I'm going to off myself right here in this booth. We are a sentence into this and you already lied to me. Yeah, the sex thing. Yeah, you said. Yeah. Middlesex is a location. Yeah, that's also one of the most common forms of, of uh, I swear baby birth I'm position. I'm going to McNutt myself. Middlesex right position. Where you have the clergy behind, right, and the birthing person in front, and then yeah, we you... talked about your weird Mormon sex ha- like rituals, where you have like six people in the room. One's reading from the Bible, the other one's singing hymns. Two are watching Andy Griffith. Everybody has their socks on. It's not even Mormon. It's just normal, right? Right. Moving on. Patrick David Mackay was born at the Central Middlesex Hospital in London on September 25th, 1952, to parents Harold and Marion Mackay. Now, his father Harold was a Scottish accountant, and Marion, his mother, was Creole and from beautiful Guyana in South America. Could you imagine how confusing that household would sound? (laughs) Yeah, his mother was half black, and Harold was all white. And if you look, I mean, he's like super white. He's very white. If you're wondering how these two met, his father, Harold, had went to British Guyana in 1950 to work on a sugar plantation. And it was there that he met and married Marion. And this is a love story as old as time off. That's actually how I met my wife. I'll never forget the day I just stood up to like stretch out my back after cutting down loads of sugar cane. And that was right there. I remember they had just brought her in on a horse. Uh, that was the first time I saw the most beautiful woman in the wide world, um, heaven. She was standing there barefoot in a puddle of mud and fertilizer, cow shit. And a, um, a single fly was dancing around on the tip of her nose. It was so cute. It was like a little blueberry. And uh, she just snatched it off her upper lip with her tongue like a chameleon. And I knew right then and there that this was the one. Like, And our song to this day is actually Sugar Honey Honey by the Archies. <laughs> you know that song? Sugar. Oh, sugar, sugar. No, 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 no. 
I'll never forget that fly just disappearing into her. It was like so cute. Like, hell yeah, I'm going to go down on her. But in 1954, Patrick's sister Ruth is born. And this doesn't really fucking matter. Moving on. (laughs) Ruth doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. She lived, she died, the end. She doesn't really have much of an effect on this story. But in 1957, when Patrick is five years old, the family settles in Dartford, Kent. This is where he'll spend most of his childhood. And 1957 is also the year that his second sister, Heather, is born. And she is also unimportant in the grand scheme of things. (laughs) Uh, What's amazing to me is we have 27 pages of research and how you could, how somehow you can... (laughs) Do enough research into someone deeply to find out that they have no impact on the story, on the story, or the world. That that that's that's double edged disturbing because that means you did enough research to find that out, and then also comment on it to say that you're omitting them from. <laughs> well, one of the things I like to do is do the family history like the tree to see if they've got living relatives. That was a big part of doing the Albert fish series because it blew my mind that Albert fish has grandchildren still living in New York city to this day. Uh. So Patrick's father, Harold had actually served in the army during world war two and had suffered and suffered from severe PTSD. Oh no. Now from a young age, when Patrick was young, his dad would sit him down and tell him nasty, gory stories about he had, how he had killed people in the war and all the horrible things he had seen. On top of this, Harold was an, an abusive alcoholic who beat the shit out of his wife, Marion, and Patrick on a daily basis, even though he avoided the sisters altogether, which is weird. I wonder why. I don't know. Like Maybe if he beat them a little bit more, we'd have more to say about them. Yeah. He had once even kicked Marion in the stomach while she was still pregnant with Patrick, which I am staunchly against. I just want to say you should not kick pregnant women in the stomach. Um, but he did kick Marion in the stomach while she was pregnant with Patrick. And maybe this caused the issues. I don't think. Now, I think this was all kind of um, a lot of this was possibly inherited what he has these issues he has later. But it is like Harold, the father here, is trying to make a serial killer. You feel like he was crafting him, like, yeah, kind of. It's like an extracurricular activity. <laughs> the Americans, they've got Dahmer and Bundy and Gacy and Gein. We got nobody. He fixed. He fixed that. Problem. He's like, get out there and set some shit on fire. <laughs> I saw your piss covered sheets this morning too, McDonald's triad. Very proud of you, son. He used the word McDonald's triad. I think that's what they call it in America because of our weight problem. It's the McDonald's triad. But over there in England, it's the just the McDonald's triad. Okay. Now, from an early age, Patrick was very cruel to animals and was known as one of his favorite half pastimes, tearing the wings off of birds. Well, that's hard and to also, do. He enjoyed pinning birds to the road and then standing back in the bushes and watching vehicles run them over. Okay. Birds are hard to catch, so I'm kind of impressed he was known to do this more than once. Have you ever caught a bird? Anytime I ever caught a bird, it was covered in mites and like three minutes from dying. Can I tell you one quick story about me catching a bird? Because it's really cool. Sure. Watch this. (laughs) 
<laughs> Did you just you just gave me the bird in the camera. <laughs> that was fun. Now tell him about it. My I feel like I'm getting pink eye now. Okay, What's your really, story? It's a call Washington, nineteen uh nineteen eighty two. A giant crow had died in my front yard. Had I killed it myself by creating one of those box traps? I like to believe so. Anyway, I grabbed it and I was just doing what I can with it and I cut, it's dead. So I cut its foot off, like mid leg. And you why? could- Why? Yeah. Because it was dead and I was going to do- I don't a know why I've got this in my pocket. This made me bring this up, but look what I've got in my pocket. A set of kangaroos nuts. Why do you? How do you? That's just so random. <laughs> this is a genuine pair of kangaroo nuts from Australia. We're in like an inception moment right now where I'm interrupting you and you with something stupid and you're interrupting my stupid with something stupider. <laughs> this is hard to do. This like, was given to me but from a listener, Aaron. Mankey? He is not a fan. I like it when you touch my nuts. Sorry. So you you you're torturing animals. Yeah. So, their legs tor- yeah off. so I yeah. um I, here's the reason I had a sketchbook and I was right. I had been really inspired by Leonardo da Vinci and uh, at that age because I really wanted to become a an, uh, an illustrator for Disney. Right. And um this is and so I had the sketchbook and I was going to proceed with doing anatomical sketches of the bird since it was dead. So I cut its leg off mid mid leg. And I noticed that there's like these little white strings in there and they were its tendons. And if yep. you pulled on one, its finger would close, you know, right. and if and, I grabbed them was, all. You, you actually, you didn't have a bird. It was a small child that you found <laughs> because birds don't have fingers. <laughs> it's talons. It's talons would close. So, but what was wild is if you held it and then you grabbed all the, all of them and you pulled then all of the talons would go and it would grab, it would grab like it was alive and it was really cool. And so I went to my sister and I was like, oh my gosh, feel how soft its palm is. And she was really apprehensive because it's a crow's foot. But I finally got her to touch the palm. And when she touched the palm, I pulled all of the tendons and it grabbed her finger. Was this Katie or Hannah? Oh, that was Katie. (laughs) Yeah. Ah, I knew it. I knew. Oh, it was the greatest moment. It was oh, like that. You that's like a horror movie moment. It was uh, the beginnings of of what I've become today. And that's the closest you ever came to torturing an animal. Yeah, that's the closest. I would. But never, it was already dead. Yeah, I wouldn't torture a real an, a real alive one. I don't think I ever. I can't even nope. bear the thought. I mean, actually, I don't, I, yeah, me neither. I've never. I don't even think. I can't even think of an example to be funny. Uh, my wife, well, we've got puppies, right? And my I, my wife's like, when they poop or they pee, you gotta swat their nose. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. I'm not gonna do that. And she's like, then you have to put your, their nose in the pee. And I'm like, I can't do that either. So, I mean, I've I, I grew up hunting. I've killed a lot of animals. Yeah, but I've never hurt one for entertainment. Oh yeah, that's just it. No. Mm-mm. But Patrick did a oh. lot. On one occasion, he put a tortoise, their family tortoise, and this is a tortoise, not a turtle. There's a difference. A tortoise is a land-dwelling animal, whereas a turtle is a water-dwelling animal. 
They had a family tortoise. Patrick snatched that up one day and threw it on a fire. And then when it was dead, after standing there watching it sizzle and squirm, he threw it over the fence into the into the neighbor's yard. And this is fucked up and kind of lazy because I don't think anybody should torture animals. But I think you should have to work if you're going to torture. I think you should, like birds, those are hard to catch. Maybe a rabbit, you got to catch it. Uh, this is fucked up because of how slow and easy to catch turtles and tortoises are. I mean, think of an animal that's easier to catch than a than a tortoise. I, it's harder to catch a hospice patient than it is to catch a turtle. <laughs> and hospice patients can't even get more than 10 feet from a power outlet. <laughs> okay. And they're not known. People are like, and if you're like, list three things that are like known about hospice patients. Somebody wouldn't go, uh, they open their mouth a lot, they don't say much, and they're very fast. (laughs) Wouldn't be the... That's two truths and a lie. I don't want to spoil it for you. The lie is that they're fast. They do open their mouth a lot. They're usually like, what? (laughs) So, wow. Patrick also loved going into the woods and torturing animals. That was his stomping ground, the woods. It was like his favorite pastime. And his typical day was just like, go to school, let dad turn my back into spaghetti, watch the monsters, and then go punch a rabbit in the asshole. That was like, that was Patrick's day. In school, though, he was an absolute dildo of a child, a real dickhead. He was a little shit known for throwing fits and throwing tantrums and stealing and lying and was probably the biggest bully on the schoolyard. Now, as a grown man, Patrick reached, you know, six foot two. He was a slender build, though. He was a slender man, but he was probably taller than the other kids. He also did poorly in school. So on top of being obnoxious, he was also stupid. And you can only be one or the other. You can't be both. You can't be obnoxious and stupid. Tell that to Jamie Kennedy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, tell that to Polly Shore. Yeah. Yeah. The Rolodex of comedians that that match that description is just flying through my head right now. (laughs) Sorry. Now, he had a schoolmate and friend by the name of Roland Hayes, who was later interviewed. And Roland Hayes would later say, quote... On the playground, we would all like young animals running around. Some good people, some bad people. Patrick McKay was one of the bad people. He was in a special class, what would be called special needs children these days. On those days, they were just troubled. He was like a little terrorist. There would be a girl standing there talking to her friend, and he would come running in from a side that he couldn't be seen from, blindsiding her, and he would shove her or pinch her or push her, and then run off. The girl would be crying, and he would, Patrick, you know, he'd be laughing and looking over his shoulder, planning his next move. <laughs> Unquote. One morning in 1962, oh. Patrick's dad. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Are you kidding you know, We've been me? doing this long enough that I know that moan. I can tell if you're touching yourself or if you just thought of something fun about coins. I know your moans. Hit me with it. Hit me right in my fucking big mouth, right on my, hit me right on my tonsils with that coin. In my head, I was like, please. Because I, there's just, I woke up this morning just hot in the head thinking about 
Yeah, you did. What happened? 62? I'm sure you remember, yeah. but that's when the British Royal Mint issued a new version of the halfpenny coin featuring a portrait of Queen Elizabeth II on the obverse and design of seated Britannia on the reverse. It was I did remember to- that. Yeah, it was used until 71. UK decimalized yeah. its currency and the halfpenny was One of my favorites. <laughs> mm. I hate it when a country decimalizes their currency, though. That's what woke me up this morning, it's just thinking about them decimalizing. Worse, worse than genocide. Ugh. Oof. I always say. I feel like in my house. I'm always here, like, there's like two things I hate in this order when a country decimalizes their coins and genocide. <laughs> they both have an effect on the economy, that's for sure. For sure. Yeah. I, I just hate, I woke up this morning thinking in my dream I had $11, and then in the dream it was like, but what if the U.S. decimalizes it? And then I woke up to my head just echoing, now I only have a dollar ten, 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 ten. So one morning in 1962, Patrick's dad, Harold Mackay, he leaves for work. Now, it's important to note that even though Harold was an abusive, disturbed alcoholic, Patrick loved him. What, what, or he did whatever Patrick's version of love is. If he ever cared about anybody, it was his dad. That was the closest he ever got to anybody. He idolized his dad. And when Harold Mackay leaves for work that morning, the last thing he says to then 10-year-old Patrick before he leaves is, quote, remember to be good, unquote. Mm. But Harold, on his way to his office in London, remember he was an accountant, he has a heart attack and dies. Oh, dang it. Just like that. He's gone. And Patrick never saw his father again, never saw his layout, never saw his, and I got made fun of a lot in the Marine Corps because I always called a wake a layout. That's what we called it in my family, in my hometown, a layout. And my buddy Joe, who has been on the show, and he's like, he would laugh and then make fun of the redneck guy pointing and laughing. And he'd be like, why do you guys call it a layout? And I'd be like, because they lay the fucking body out so everybody can come and gawk at it. Oh, that makes sense. I was thinking maybe it was because of like the food spread that you guys put out. No, it was just lay out. You just lay the body out there in the floor. It's even more basic than I would have imagined. On a garbage bag. (laughs) So, Patrick never saw him again. He never saw him for two reasons. He never attended the funeral because, A, the funeral was back in Scotland, and B, Patrick's mother, Marion, just felt like it wouldn't have been good for him mentally because it bothered him so much. But because there was no closure... Patrick looked at this as his father abandoning abandoning him, which is a weird mental twist to put on as a coping mechanism for some losing somebody. Well, if you think about it, it it's kind of a double down. Patrick's fought probably fully aware in '62 that they that the UK had decimalized its currency and right, that back to his, this, yeah. And that his dad, an accountant, mind you, I feel like there's some serendipity with my coin fact this time. That an accountant had been decimalized himself. Like you think about monetarily what that was probably doing in that poor boy's head. Right, right. He never really processed that his father was dead, though. And for the remainder of his childhood up into his teenage years, he did keep a picture of his dad in his pocket at all times and would pull it out and pretty regularly tell people that Harold was still alive. 
That's awkward. <laughs> Very awkward. Yep. Very so. weird. Now, when his father died, he immediately took over Harold's armchair in the living room and began beating his mother, but adding his sisters to the mix. It was as if he inherited the role of his father. That's a weird usurpation of roles. Right? We're already seeing some weird stuff going on here. I mean, there is the whole bird and torturing animals thing, but this is super weird. He kind of, it was like he was possessed by Harold in a way. Sad. His behavior also got more odd. This is another quote quote from his childhood friend, Roland Hayes. Quote. After school, we used to go walking around town a little bit. We used to go exploring and climb up through the trees and into some wasteland and play around up there. The first time I went up there with Patrick Mackay, he picked a bell-shaped flower, filled it up with his urine, and drunk it in front of me. I was absolutely gall-smacked when he did that, which was the reason he did it, to shock me. Unquote. So he liked doing things to shock people. Pissing in flowers and then drinking his own piss. And honestly, to be fair up to this point, uh, if I never had said a name from the beginning, you wouldn't know if I was doing the backstory to Patrick Mackay or Bam Margera. <laughs> I wonder if that's why he also said his dad was alive, because it kind of gave him an internal, you know, an in- internal kind of what my hand is doing. You know, uh, what is my hand doing? Internal... You're doing the, there's no buffalo sauce on the pizza. Ah, that's the, that's the left hand. The right hand, when I do this, it's the internal excitement, like a jolt, like a, like a kink, not kink. Mm. Kink? Is that the right, what? Huh? It'll come to me. Do you have any kinks? Do I have any kinks? Yeah. Do you like, th- like things in your butt or do you like things, prefer things with your balls or do you like, like, what is your kink? What is your kink? You got to have something. Once you're into popping balloons with your, I don't know. Maybe you shove a, maybe you shove a cute or a, like a a, a, a thumbtack up your pee hole so that the sharp end comes out your dick, and then you like popping balloons. You like hold your arms up like this, and then you you and your wife blow up a bunch of balloons, and she calls you the popper, and you run around with an erection and pop balloons with the thumbtack sticking out of your dickhead. What are you into? What's your kink? I just really like my wife's boobs. <laughs> well, that's simple enough. You're like me. You have like yeah. little hair house on the prairie sexual preferences. Yeah. 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 I, I just, okay. I feel so lucky. Like, I just can't tell you how lucky I feel. She's also Amy. 12 years younger hey. than me. Hold on just a minute. <laughs> Going to be about another hour. Yeah, just keep blowing up the balloons. (laughs) Yeah, as many as you can. Grody. That's right. Daddy Popper's coming. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, she was asking about dinner. (laughs) Okay. I think I muted that. In early 1964, at 12 years old, Patrick seemed to develop an obsession with and nobody's going to guess what I'm about to say because it seems like an uh, one of those Mad Libs things where you're like, pick a verb or pick a noun. <laughs> In early 1964, 12-year-old Patrick developed an obsession with stealing garden gnomes. What? 
That's right. I said stealing garden gnomes. He was like a little troll scouring the neighborhood there. No gnome was safe. This guy really had a fucking vendetta against garden gnomes. And it's unknown as to why he would. <laughs> we don't know why. And honestly, I don't even believe in him. That's quite weird. Unknown. He amassed a huge collection of garden gnomes and he would play with them in his backyard. He was very proud of them. It was like a mountain of garden gnomes. Sometimes he would just sit. They had an old car seat out of a car sitting there in the yard and he would just sit in that car seat and in his backyard and just stare at his collection like the way Jeffrey Dahmer would look at the skulls in his chair in his living room of garden gnomes. And uh, honestly, old car seats are the lawn furniture of choice of my people. So old patty cake might have had some Kentucky in him. We don't we don't know, <laughs> but it's usually uh, so, uh, an old car seat out of a uh, out of like an eighty three Chevy truck next to a couple of flamingos. Why a worn mud path from a from a Rottweiler that's chained to a rotten dog house? That's a lot of the furniture decor in a Kentucky front yard. I don't know why. There is a picture, though, of young Patrick that his neighbor, thinking it was odd, snapped from her upstairs from a window of him just just admiring his mountain of garden gnomes that he had stolen. Uh. And he's probably about 12 years old in the picture, but she had kind of taken it sneakily. And mm. it's really funny. He's just like sitting in his in his old car chair, just really admiring all these fucking gnomes. God damn, he ha- I don't know if he hated him or he loved him. Guess we'll never know him. <laughs> he probably looked at it as like a very necessary job that was worth its risks. Yeah. Like lineman. <laughs> like dangerous. Signed up to die. I know the risks. <laughs> On July 22nd, 1964, he gets three years of probation for stealing garden gnomes from a church garden. But there was also that little thing with arson, because before leaving the church after taking the gnomes, he also sneaks in, puts a candle under a curtain in the church. That curtain catches fire and causes quite a bit of damage to the uh, the Catholic church there. So he gets three years probation, and this will be our first soiree into the law that he gets, the first of about two billion. Because on September 9th, 1964, just two months later... He's sent to Court Lee School for Delinquent Boys, which we would go more into in a bit. And he's sent there for the first time after he's caught stealing garden gnomes. Crazy. November 1965, after a year, he is released from the Court Lee School for Delinquent Boys to the care of his mother. Now, what you'll, I'm not, I haven't listed in this outline every instance of him going, getting sent to schools or getting sent away. It was like every other month he was getting some, sent somewhere else. Uh, but I have listed the big ones here. And a big issue with this is because oftentimes when he got sent to these places, he would only be there for nine, 10, 11 days before his mother would intervene and have him brought home just so he could beat the shit out of her and, and his sister some more. Jeez. This kid's got some weird habits. Yeah, he's an odd he's an odd duck. A real silly goose. A real goober. I'd say. Patrick Mackay was. Uh, a little goober bear. On January 1966, at 13 years old, he's admitted as an emergency case to the psychiatric wing of West Hill General Hospital in Dartford, and he's discharged after four days. 
And this is kind of where we're going back to these like in these these run-ins with the law at an early age. Uh, that same year, in April of 1966 to June of 1966, he's admitted to Beach House, St. Augustine's Mental Hospital. He runs away and returns three times. They eventually realize they were unable to detain him. He was like unmanageable. We can't even hold this kid, so they just let him loose two months later. <laughs> Same year, July 1966, just a month after he's released from Beach House, he's sent back to the Courtleys approved school for delinquent boys. And this is where we're going to Courtleys a little bit because he will spend a good chunk of time here. Now, Courtleys up was notorious for child abuse and beatings. And they actually even kept track of the beatings. Uh, then they were called canings, giving out each year. There were 3,006 canings in 1966 at this school. There were 2,199 in 1967. What? Ironically enough, in what? 1966, there was just about 1,000 the year after Patrick got out. You know what's crazy? <clears throat> Do you know what was on the obverse of the Mexican peso in 1967? Oh, my God. You said caning, and on the obverse of that, there was an eagle with a snake in its beak on the reverse. Yeah, I knew that. Crazy. It's, yeah. The world is really flat when you think about like the facts and the timing of things. It's like the universe knows what's going on. Speaking of snakes, while he was in one of these reformatories, he told a psychiatrist there that he often saw snakes that weren't there. So that's a little fun tidbit that I didn't even have written in the script but I just remembered. So I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you for bringing that up. Yep. I knew, knew I could help. Back to Courtley's, the school for delinquent boys. Patrick was, the, like I said, the recipient of many of these canings. Um, he was also locked in cupboards for long periods of time, uh, beaten mercilessly with just beat these boys and locked them in cupboards. It was a horrible place, but uh, they had a great math department. Oh. <laughs> wasn't all bad like yeah you need crutches now but you know long division <laughs> July 1967 Patrick is released after serving one year in court lease but in August of 1967 one month later Patrick is taken to another boys school this time in a Red Hill but after being there for a very short period of time, the principal convinces him to leave. And that should tell you something. In a boys' reformatory school, the principal is like, hey, guy, please, please leave. We do not want you here. Please. <laughs> In December of 1967, the same year, he's now 15 years old, Patrick Mackay is finally diagnosed as a psychopath. One of the psychiatrists that checked him out made a note that, quote, he has the potential to be a future killer of women. Oh, that's what they said. The psychiatrist said? Yes. And then they let him go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's amazing. So it sounds like over there in the UK, they're not doing much better with their justice system as we, as, uh, than we are. Are we sure, though, back then in 67, future killer of women, was that what it sounds like? Or maybe that, that, 
like he had a personality like kind of like Mr. Steal Your Girl? Kind of like do you like think lady, that? You think he, you think that psychiatrist just meant lady killer? Yeah, like, like, oh, like he's a lady oh, killer. Patrick I mean Patrick. McKay. I mean looking at his looks as a grown man, he does. He kind of looks like Richard Ramirez, but with good teeth. Hmm. And that's saying a lot because he lives on Bad Teeth Island. <laughs> he's not a bad looking dude. He's not a great looking dude. Just a, looks like a dude. I mean, looks like a white dude with a quarter black ancestry. So I don't think anybody would be like, yeah, that's Mr. Still You Girl. Mm. Uh, they'd be like, that's Mr. Marius Six. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Christmas 1967. Marion packs her family, what's left of it, the two girls and Patrick, packs them up and moves the family to Gravesend. Gravesend is another place there in the UK. Now, while they're at Gravesend, the police were constantly called to the house, nonstop, sometimes up to four times a week, because Patrick was constantly beating up his sisters as well as his mother. Uh, Later, a police officer by the name of Amy Tapp was interviewed. She was one of the police officers that was often called to the Mackay home four times a week. And they often requested Officer Amy Tapp because she had a special ability to kind of calm Patrick down in these fits that he was having when he's throwing. She Something about her Patrick liked and respected, and he would behave for her. Never, We never found out why, though, but she is quoted here as saying, quote, He was just like a caged animal. He was emotionally very disturbed, and at the time, very mental. I felt that he should be put somewhere and shut away so that nobody could be damaged as a result of his mental reaction to people. He was violent and obviously would hurt somebody in the end, unquote. I like how so far in this episode, you've said the word pee-poo like 10 times. <laughs> That's fun. I'm doing quotes. I didn't say them. They did. You said pee That's direct quotes. Pee-poo. Pee-poo. And I, got, and I take these quotes, I wrote them down as they were saying them in interviews. So it's not like paraphrasing. They are direct quotes. That's how many times they said, Pete That's funny. In it. I don't know why they'd say that. But I do have a thought on why the, uh, Officer Amy Tapps might have been, you know, somebody that Mackay liked. Because if you think about it, he's sort of a combination of the dream parent that he never had like the authoritativeness um, combined of a father figure combined with a female presence. So maybe that's what it was. Like there was a sort of this like hybrid comfort that he had in, in that, you know, this, this person was everything he wanted. Plus he knew that they wouldn't hurt him. Yeah, possibly. And also, you know, I, I really, I really like stressed her accent there. But Amy Tapp seems like a very pleasant woman, so I feel like she was probably compassionate with him. Something that he didn't experience a lot, mm. and he seemed to genuinely like her. And to be honest, in this entire story, she might be the only person that he gets that that gets that from him in the entire mm. story. Which is interesting. 
Yeah, you think about just the the list of of deviants, and there's always <clears throat> in so many of their cases, there's like just one person that stands out that uh, you know that the person doesn't seem to that that they won't like Dylan Klebold went through a whole. I was getting ready to say that's why it's so important to be nice to the weird kid in class. Would, yeah, because you know he mowed everybody down, but there was like a couple where he's like, "You're fine," you know. I'm you sure make like, fun of my Dragon Ball Z cards. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure that like there probably when Nero was burning Rome down, there was probably one like one guy. He's like, "You can leave." I used to work at this place where there was a weird guy there that I genuinely liked, but he was just kind of off, and everybody he made everybody uncomfortable, and he would often come in out of hours, like just at a any. He would complain to me a lot about working there. He hated everybody. He hated the job. He hated the people. He hated the management. But he would come in and talk to me sometimes on his days off. And when I'd be standing there and I would see him, we'll call him, I'll say Bill, because I don't want to use his real name. But when I saw Bill come around the corner, I got like a little nervous. Yeah. I was like, oh, he's not supposed to be here today. Oh, God. <laughs> Like what I wanted is to he? immediately yell, I was good to you, Bill. <laughs> Let me get behind this machine first. This is your reflex <laughs> comment when you see him off hours. Oh, God, I was good to you, Bill. It's <laughs> uh, funny. In May 1968, Patrick, for the first time, attempts to actually kill his mother when he tries to strangle her to death. And afterwards, he attempts suicide. For this little failure, he is sent to Stonehouse Mental Hospital in Dartford, and there he's kept for 72 hours. Now, fun fact about Stonehouse Mental Hospital, that old insane asylum, it was converted into apartments in 2005 and had been an insane asylum through the 1800s and the 1900s. So just in case, it's you know, it's an apartments now, just in case you live in or around Dartford and you're looking for a good place to live and you want to get raped daily by a man from the 1800s that's been dead for 96 years and suffered from schizophrenia while he was alive, I would say check that place out because it's for sure haunted. That sounds, that sounds like a lot of fun. For sure haunted. We all know that old insane asylums are 100% of the time haunted. And now this one's an apartment building. We should go there sometime. It would be cool. Yeah. Get a room. Maybe, maybe two. Okay. And so that's the end of that convo. October 1968. Four months later, 16-year-old Patrick is committed to the Moss Side Hospital in Maghull, England. He, he's committed there. As a psychopath. That hospital is now known as Ashworth Hospital and is still there to this day. But in August of 1972, after being there at the uh, Mossad Hospital in Maghull, he's there for four years. He's released from Mossad Hospital at the age of 20 years old. And this is when shit starts hitting the fan because to the surprise of probably nobody, four years in an insane asylum didn't help him. And then they just let him loose. Why do they keep doing that? Why, why do they keep I doing that? I don't know. I don't know. I do not know. But it didn't pay off. Wow. <clears throat> it was an interesting gamble, but it didn't pay off in the end. 
because it's at this point at 20 years old after getting out of Maghul, they are get, after getting out of Mossad, that Patrick becomes obsessed not with garden gnomes anymore. He's grown out of that. He's moved on to Nazis and dictatorship and Adolf Hitler. He idolizes Adolf Hitler. Not now, good. Patrick saw himself as Aryan and firmly believed in the Aryan race, despite being one quarter black. This is like a way more fucked up version of Rachel Dozal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is like that Dave Chappelle, uh, the black white supremacist. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but kind of follows the same format where like you would think somebody would stop them, but they are just keep getting let go. Like just keep like, all right, well, don't do that again. Bye. Yeah. I mean maybe even get rehired. I, I, I think the next we should month. throw a red flag on anybody that gets obsessed with Nazis. And I yeah. think that's fair. Maybe except for biographers and historians. Maybe we should yeah. give them a pass. But people that are like doing what Patrick did next, which was wearing a homemade Nazi uniform around, which he did. But it was homemade. He, it wasn't like authentic. It was like a poorly done cosplay. Okay. Um, it had lapel badges and an armband, though. So it was really clear what he was trying to do. There are also pictures of this. It was homemade, so there wasn't was really homemade. any like authority behind it. So nobody like it was homemade, right? It was like so everybody's safe. It looked like if Arnie from What's Eating Gilbert Grape made a Nazi uniform. Mm-hmm. It looked like somebody, as if somebody from that show Love on the Spectrum made <laughs> a Nazi uniform. Okay, wow. <laughs> okay, it wasn't. Not saying they couldn't do well. But I think they're less likely. Well, if they, if they sat squarely within their savant, they probably would do really well. Actually, that's true. Yeah, that's very so, true. I don't want to. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole. But you should check out Etsy hashtag Love on the Spectrum, and you'll find some cr- crazy Etsy stores. And I'll tell you one thing: Love on the Spectrum is a great show. Yeah, you can't really walk it back now. We might as well just move on. I'm not walking it back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying it's a great show. Yeah. Yep. I'm not taking back anything I said. No, I'm I saying know, it's a right? good show. No, yeah. No disclaimers here. By the way, Patrick also, so he's wearing this Nazi uniform around. He's calling himself Aryan. He's reading everything he can about Adolf Hitler and dictatorships. He starts referring to himself as, quote, Franklin Bolvault the first. Huh. And he constantly goes on long tangents to anybody that listens about his desire to, quote, wipe out old people. <laughs> I think the only time somebody actually calls themselves the first is nobody does. But nobody, yep. the only people that do I think there are has people... to be a second, actually, well, before you can call yourself the first. Or if you become a king. Is it three? Jeff it's, says it's three. It's three. So at this be... point, he's just Franklin Bolvold. So it's always a retroactive title. Or maybe if you were the king or a pope and your yours was the first name to be used in the line of king kings or popes, I could right. see it maybe. Right. Well, maybe you're wondering where he got this name from, Franklin Bolvolt the first. 
And I was too up. I was wondering if there was a connection to Nazis. There's no connection to Nazis. I searched and searched. There's no ties of anybody named Franklin Bovolt to the Nazi regime. He could have technically went with anything. McLovin, Hot Randy the Third, Johnny Rottencrotch, anything. Wow. Yeah. I would love to know the the thought process as to how he got Franklin Bovolt. Yeah. I thought you were going to bring it. But, you, but uh, you're not. No, you're I don't not. know. We don't yeah. know where that came from. Yeah. He filled his flat with Nazi memorabilia, uh, Nazi insignias, and and magazine articles, anything he could find about Nazis and Adolf Hitler, pictures of Hitler. He loved them. He also started listening to a lot of Kanye West, which I thought was interesting when I found that out. Obviously, I made that up. We can move on here. He also kept a photo of Heinrich Himmler. On the knot stand next to his bed. I feel like he's doing it for attention. Like I think he's fucking crazy. That's what I yeah. think. Yeah. I will admit, though, that Heinrich Himmler on your knot stand isn't as weird as that glossy framed 8x10 of Billie Eilish that you keep next to your bed up. It's a close-up, and I think it's funny. It's not Billie Eilish, unless you, you wake know. up every morning, you tell me, you put on lipstick, kiss it, and then go, let's get this day started, Bill. That's it's what you a say. close up. I have told you this before. It's just her eye, and I think it's funny because when somebody's like, "Why do you have a close up of the eye on your nightstand?" I say it's Billy Eilish eyelashes. And I told you this. It's a joke. It's a joke. It plays really well when people are in my bedroom. Patrick also during this Nazi uh, this Nazi love affair that he's having here uh, also begins abusing drugs and alcohol heavily. So pretty much for the remainder of this story, up until he gets caught, he's either high or drunk. Now, aside from the Nazi obsession and the drugs and the alcohol, something else began to happen after Patrick was released from Mossad Hospital in the August of 1972 up. The uppity areas of London, specifically Chelsea and Knott's Bridge, were just fucking blindsided by a wave of burglaries and thefts and muggings and robberies, and purse snatchings. The suspect always targeted old women and often would befriend them on the street beforehand, and then he would gain access to their homes where he would then attack. Now, in the beginning, like I said, it's just burglaries. It's still in their their jewelry, still in their purses, but it does escalate. I don't think it's any secret who's doing this, considering we're doing a podcast on the guy. Bromont the Thirst. It's it's Franklin Bovalt the First. Yeah. Promo yeah. the Thirst. Also known as Stinky Pete. Have I told you that I loved you lately? Early June 1973, Patrick Mackay bumps into a local priest by the name of Anthony Crean. And that's probably this is probably the most unfortunate day in Anthony Crean's life. Uh no, this act it'll be it'll come a little later. But he does bump into a local priest named Anthony Crean. And Anthony Crean, he's out walking his Jack Russell Terrier by the name of Jack, which is very, once again, uncreative. And uh, he's walking Jack, his Jack Russell Terrier, on this footpath in the woods. And it's there, while walking his little Jack Russell Terrier, that Anthony Crean bumps into Patrick out on this footpath. And they spark up a conversation up. Anthony Crean sees Patrick as a young man uh, you know, at this point, he's he's 21 years old, 20 years old, somebody that needs help, 
somebody that, that doesn't have a lot of friends. So he tries to befriend him. And that same day, they walk to a pub and Crean buys Patrick a beer there and they become friends. Or so Crean thinks. Anthony Crean thinks. Now, this pub where they met at would eventually become a common spot where they would meet up. Uh, they would meet up there uh, over the next few weeks. Patrick and Crean would, and they would catch up. Uh, Anthony Crean, the priest, he would offer advice, money, food, whatever Patrick needed. Um, if you're wondering why, Anthony Crean was known around this little village there as a giving man that was compassionate and caring. He was very quiet, kept to himself. The only time he really spoke was to help people. He he was he spent most of his free time giving meals to the homeless and also regularly let the homeless stay in his house overnight. And his Jack Russell Terrier, little little Jack Russell Terrier by the name of Jack, was with him at all times. Jack was always beside Anthony at all times. I listened to one podcast on this story that tried to say that just <laughs> made a massive reach and said, well, maybe Anthony Kareem molested Patrick when Patrick was younger. Like, there was no, nothing about that anywhere. So they just made shit up. It was like, oh, priests molest people. This priest definitely molested Pat. Like, it was the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But that's not fair to this man because he's going to be a victim here. And according to everybody that knew him, he was a good man. No kids came out later. He doesn't have any of that negative stuff that is often attributed to the Catholic Church attached to him as an individual. Yeah. Uh, so, so they're just made that up like they... They just made it up. Invented it. and They just made it up. And they said, they said in the episode, they were like, well, you know, there's no proof of this. There's not even any speculation about it. This is just me. These are my thoughts. That's what the host said. Uh, That's kind of fucked up, I think. And that's coming from somebody that says really fucked up shit on the regular and has said fucked up shit about 150 times in the last hour and a half. (laughs) I just don't think it's fair. To do that mm-hmm. to this man. Yeah, the Catholic Church has a lot of issues. That doesn't mean that this guy was guilty of it. Moving on. Doesn't matter, I guess. And the like it's just not true. That's that's all that I'm saying. June twenty first, nineteen seventy three, after Anthony Crean had befriended they've been friends for weeks now. They've met at this pub. Crean has tried to help Patrick, he's given him food, he's given him money. Uh, Patrick does break into Anthony Crean's house, the priest's house, and he steals a check for thirty pounds which equates to $36, which equates today to $252. Well, buy you lunch. It'll buy you lunch. So, you know, Crean had trusted Patrick. He had let him, he, he had, and he, and it came back and bit him in the ass. Patrick takes this check, he cashes it, and he spends that money on drugs and alcohol. But he's pretty quickly apprehended. But priest Anthony Crean begs the police to release him and absolutely refuses to press charges and ask them to just forgive him. This crime is very important later. But for now, let's set this whole thing with priest Anthony Crean to the side. You know, one thing we could do, I don't want to, I, I really don't want to derail you. So you can cut this if you want in the episode. But you know, one thing we could do right now that, that might be nice. What? Ads. <sighs> And we are back. July 9th. That was good times. July 9th, 1973. This is a big day for Patrick Mackay. 
This is the day that according to Patrick Mackay, he commits his first murder. Now, this is one that we have no proof of. He was never convicted of it, but we do know that this murder happened. Patrick Mackay did a lot of fucking talking when he got caught. So what is true and what isn't, we don't know. This is one that we that they weren't able to prove, but he claims he took he took credit for it at the very least. We do know that on July 9th, 1973, a, a young 17-year-old German maid, beautiful young lady, if you look at pictures of her, her name was Heidi, Heidi Milk, is stabbed on a train. And I say German maid, she was like a foreign, I don't know what the word for it is. She was like a foreign exchange worker. Uh, she was living in this family's home, acting as their maid, helping yeah, with the like children. She had a work visa. A work visa, yeah, yeah something like, like that. Yeah, uh, beautiful blonde-headed young little <clears throat> young lady, German girl, uh, had her whole life ahead of her, is stabbed on a train for seemingly no reason because she didn't know anybody there. And then after being stabbed, she was thrown from the train while it was moving. Oof! And that was near Catford, there in the UK. So she's murdered for no reason whatsoever. So whether or not Patrick did this, we don't know. He does take credit for it later. But Heidi Milk was murdered on July 9th, 1973. As for the murders that we know Patrick did, we are there now up with his escalated and it is here. It's been a long road, but we're now here because the next ones uh, we know for a fact that he did. And on July 20th, 1973, this is another one that we don't have a lot of information on, but we know he did it because a 74-year-old widow by the name of Mary Hines is beaten to death at her home on Wiles Road in Kentish Town, London. Now, while he was beating her, the murderer took a piece of wood and put it inside her. He pulled her stocking off, shoved the wood inside and then shoved it deep down her throat, down her windpipe, and then Whoa. beat her to death with fists. It's a 74-year-old woman, a widow, a little old lady, not bothering anybody, not hurting anyone. After she was dead, her home was ransacked, and uh, some items were stolen. It's only going to get worse, though, in terms of viciousness and gruesomeness. Because by mid-1973, Patrick is living with some friends in a rundown flat down there in Finchley, North London. However, after not living with them for long, this is on, and what he's getting ready to do is on top of the Nazi stuff. So they're probably already like not super stoked about him being there with the, with the Nazi uniform. They're like trying to make a sandwich and Patrick walks by in a Nazi uniform and asks them if they see the snakes. And they're like, what snakes? And he's like, never mind. <laughs> walks away. So he begins not long after moving in with his friends there, he begins claiming to them that he is possessed by demons. So they threw him out. And I would just love to be able to see the conversation that took place that made them kick him out, right? They're all sitting around smoking weed and just chilling. Some guy some guy is like, "Dude, did you see Claire's hat today? She was looking good, man." And another one of the friends is like, yeah, I think she's into you, man. You should ask her for her number. And then they pass the joint to Patrick, right? And he's like, yeah, it's like just because the demons tell you that you need to melt a bunch of aluminum cans down in a homemade furnace and pour the molten aluminum on your friend's faces while they're sleeping doesn't mean you have to, you know. <laughs> and that'll ruin your buzz. 
Now, Patrick did come back a few days later after getting kicked out and tried to rob the place out of spot, but was somehow captured and got six months in jail for it. And I'm sure it wasn't hard to figure out who did this. It was probably the guy that they had recently pissed off that had a criminal record longer than Abbey Road and talked to demons. (laughs) He gets a room at a hostel. At 30 Great North Road, there in East Finchley, London. And that building is still there today, and it's unchanged. And that leads us up to February 10th, 1974. On this day, an 84-year-old widow by the name of Isabella Griffiths is coming home from shopping, and she's got a bunch of heavy bags in tote. Patrick's walking down the sidewalk, and he sees her. He offers to uh, help carry them. He says, hey, ma'am, you, you need help carrying those bags, thinking that he's a polite young man and probably proud to see uh, young people stepping up and helping the elderly. She says, yes, I would love that. She's 84. At the door to her apartment there in Shine Walk, Chelsea, they talk for just a moment. She thanks him and tells him that if he ever needs anything to come and knock on her door. And she seemed to genuinely really like Patrick. And uh, he remembered that. And on February 14th, 1974, just four days later, Patrick does knock on her door up. But when Isabel answers, she opens the door and doesn't undo the chain, right? So she's looking through the crack in the door. The chain's still up. Safety first. And I don't think, according to Patrick, he originally didn't come there to do what he does here. He was asking her if she needed anything. And he did ask her if she needed anything. But she says, no, not today, Patrick, but thank you. But him seeing the chain and seeing that she wouldn't open the door all the way infuriates him. He, he saw it as she didn't trust him. And why should she? She really doesn't know him. She's 84 years old. I think <sighs> opening the door for him at all is enough respect to give this young man and, and talking to him. I agree. But when she... He sees that she doesn't trust him enough to undo the chain. He snaps. He lunges at the door, which breaks the chain, and he is now inside her house. He slams the door behind him, wraps his hands around her frail 84-year-old throat, wrestles her to the ground, and strangles her to death in the floor. Jeez. It gets worse, though, because he drags her body to the kitchen by the feet, pulls a large knife out of one of the kitchen drawers, and buries it into her stomach about four inches above her belly button. He then rips a curtain from a window, poses the body with the arm crossed, and covers the body with a curtain, with that curtain. He then spends an hour or so hanging around the apartment. He gets drunk on a bottle of whiskey he found. He listens to the radio. And uh, for whatever reason, he fills the kitchen sink with water and then shoves it full of dishes and shoes. Random. Yeah, it's like a fucked up version of the Wet Bandits from Home Alone. It would be a way different movie if it was Patrick McKay. (laughs) (laughs) So We're the Wet Bandits. Macaulay Culkin's laying in pieces in the living room. Merry, 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 merry Christmas. (laughs) We're the Wet Bandits. Uh, There's not a part two. (laughs) There's technically six parts. (laughs) Part two is home alone in a mortuary. 
<laughs> they travel to France and kill half of the other family, and so it's like a two-parter. Oh. Isabella's body, her poor old 84-year-old body, was found on February 27th, 13 days later. That's when it was discovered. And it was only discovered then because milk and newspapers had started stacking up on her steps outside. And that prompted the ne- that rose suspicion to the neighbors because they hadn't seen her in almost two weeks. And then the police entered and found her badly decomposed body in the kitchen. On July 17th, 1974, five months later, a 63-year-old man by the name of Leslie Goodman is alone in his tobacco and sweet shop on Rock Street in Finsbury. And he's working. He's a 63-year-old man. He's uh, there in his in his cigarette and candy shop there. He's working. And Patrick McKay enters. And at some point, the two of them get into an argument over a pack of cigarettes. Patrick ends up grabbing up a... Uh, it, it was a gas pipe that had a knuckle joint at the end of it. Pretty heavy like pop, right? It's got a lot of weight, especially with the joint, that that 90 degree joint at the end of it. Yeah. He, he snatches that up from somewhere there in the store and beats Leslie Goodman to death with it over the head. He hit him a total of 40 times and then leaves, leaves the 63 year old man laying in a puddle of blood in the back of his shop for his family to find later that night. February of 1975. So this is 17. Like six months later? Six, seven months yeah. later? Six, seven. That's what I was going to say. Yep. A 48-year-old woman by the name of Ivy Davies, she was a cafe owner, is beaten to death with a steel pry bar in her home in Westcliff. March 10th, 1975. One month later. And and they're not on to him. No one no. is on to him. No. Okay. They have no clue who's doing this. It is raising alarms, though. People are scared. Because you got to keep in mind, this is happening all in like upper class sections of London. Yeah, and news travel would travel really fast, especially yeah. if like you know old ladies were dying and old. He's men. always targeting. Ninety nine percent of the time, it's old ladies, but the one percent of the time that he is attacking men, they're also older men. Yeah, okay. The youngest person that he attacks here, outside of the seventeen year old, his first murder, is a forty eight. This forty eight year old woman. So that's not an old lady. That's just a you know, a relatively young middle-aged woman, but she's the youngest person that he will attack, 48. But on March 10th, 1975, like I said, you know, a month later, a wealthy 89-year-old woman, so she's 89, one year away from 90, 11 years away from 100 years old, Adele Price. (sighs) She's returning home also from shopping, and she's returning home to her apartment building there, at 13 Laundez Square in Belgravia. Now, 13 Laundez Square, it's a fancy building, still there to this day. It's in a, it's in an, uh, still to this day and a kind of uppity section there. Laundez Square is, looks like a shopping center. It's a very beautiful white building. But when Adele Price returns to her building here where her apartment is, Patrick Mackay is standing on the front steps of it, fumbling through his keys as if he's trying to find his key to also get in the building. And she doesn't think nothing of it. Maybe he's a new a new tenant there. And she uses her key, passes by him, and walks in. And that's when Patrick takes the chance to go inside the building. He goes in behind Adele, 
And in the hallway of the apartment building there, he strikes up a conversation, a friendly conversation. At one point in this conversation, he asked her if he can have a glass of water. She, he tells her he's thirsty. She agrees. And she lets him inside her apartment. And once the door slams behind them inside Adele's apartment, Patrick immediately hops on her and attacks her. He strangles her to death in the hallway there. After strangling her, he once again drags her body, but this time to the bedroom. And he leaves it there on the floor. He actually hangs around inside her flat for hours afterwards. He drinks all her alcohol until he's actually shit-faced enough to fall asleep in her living room chair while she's laying in her bedroom dead. Jeez. The only reason he woke up late that afternoon is because he could hear Adele's granddaughter outside at the front door of the building trying to get in. She's knocking and asking if somebody can let her in. Patrick panics, steals two small radios from the apartment, and begins to leave. He actually passes Adele's granddaughter on the steps outside of the building as he's leaving. She's completely unaware of what she's about to find upstairs, so she had no reason to be suspicious of him at that point. Yeah, because she's, she's unaware of, of anything at this point. She doesn't even know that her grandmother's dead, yeah. Right. But she passed her grandmother's killer on the steps of the building. He was coming out. She was going in. Oh, that reminds me of like when Ed... Kemper's walking past the couple going out on a date and he's got like a head in a bowling bag or something like that. Yes. Hello. Hey, happy, happy Saturday. Kemper talks about that polarity, the difference in the realities. Yes. There. <laughs> Two yeah, young the contrast. people. They're so happy to be on their date and he's like, I've got a head in my bag. <laughs> yeah. Oof. So what you see here is is we're in a frenzy now, right? Because the next murder is on March 21st, 1975. This is just 11 days after murdering Adele Price. And this is when we'll come back to 63-year-old Roman Catholic priest Anthony Crean. If you remember, this is the man that tried to help him earlier in the story. Gave him money, gave him food. Bought him beers sometimes. Yes, with his little Jack Russell. On March 21st, 1975... 63-year-old Anthony Crean is at his home in Shorn, near Rochester there, in his back garden, planting some flowers. He's got his little Jack Russell there by his side. He's planting flowers. When he hears a knock at the front door. So he comes in through the back door, walks through the house, and opens the front door. And standing there is probably the last person on earth he wanted to see. Patrick McKay. Patrick just busts in. Just the second he opens the door, he he knocks Anthony off his feet almost. Anthony falls to the ground. Patrick drags him upstairs to the bathroom. I'm assuming while the little Jack Russell is barking. He then forces Anthony to get into the bathtub while fully clothed. He's still in his gardening boots, actually. He makes Anthony lay down in the bathtub. Patrick pulls out a large knife and begins to stab him while he's laying there in the bathtub. Over and over and over again. He stops after a few stabs. Anthony Crean is already fatally injured, but he's still alive. He's moaning in the bathtub. Patrick then leaves the bathroom, goes downstairs, under the stairs, and gets an axe. Patrick was later quoted as saying at this point that he, quote, I just got the urge to use it and take his head off. The blood made me excited. It made me worse. 
unquote. He then returns to the bathroom with the axe and begins to bash in the head with the priest, not stopping until his head was nearly split in two. Patrick would later say that one of the last things that Father Anthony Crean did was reach up, touch and pull at his brains that were hanging out of his forehead, looked at him for a moment in confusion. Uh, which we all know from all of the many movies that that's possible because the brain doesn't have any nerve endings, so he wouldn't know what he was holding. He's also probably still in shock, or probably in shock to a certain extent. Oh, he's already yeah. been stabbed numerous times. His head split oh. open. I just hope that he's not like legitimately conscious during this part. You know what I mean? But yeah. it's still not over yet because Anthony Crane, although he's standing, he's laying there with his head bashed in, almost split in two. He's been stabbed multiple times. He's still breathing, and this this bathtub is full of probably an inch of blood. That's when Patrick Mackay turns the water on to the bathtub and fills it up, rolls Anthony Crean over onto his belly, and spends the next few minutes pushing his head underwater until he's nearly drowned and then pulling him back right up before he he dies. Jeez. Before long, though, Anthony Crean is finally dead. little sympathy from the creator. Patrick then stood there for about an hour between 30 minutes and an hour, and just stared at the body. Before leaving, he throws the bloody axe back under the stairs and leaves and goes to his mother's house and has dinner with her. And I think this is important in the story because it shows that no matter how chaotic and busy your life is, make time for your parents. (laughs) Oh, you had to work a double? Patrick McKay just got done cutting a priest's head in half. <laughs> Made time for his mother to go have dinner with his mother. Yeah. Afterwards. Yep. It's make time weird for your parents. T- weird time to 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 make that PSA, but you know, I'll get behind it. I, I mean there is a redeeming quality. I mean that's beautiful. I think that no no matter how bad this got, he did go have a dinner with his mother. Oof. And this is a mother he, that's put up with a lot of bullshit. I mean, he yeah. strangled her on, like, multiple occasions. He's beat the piss out of his sisters. Beat the piss out of her. And, you know, I don't know what dinner they had, but this is the UK, so it's probably something unseasoned and brown. I would imagine a bread of some type, some beans, and some what, gray meat that was boiled. What's fun about it, too, is you don't know if you're having a, a breakfast or a or a or a supper or a dessert yeah because it's all unseasoned and brown (laughs) they even call their cookies biscuits they have a they have a delicacy that they like called spotted dick i actually got that in my freshman year of college (laughs) (laughs) Uh, they really do they have a they have a dessert called spotted dick now later that night patrick crean's body is found by a nun, uh, one of the nuns that 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 worked under him, and all the nuns loved him, Anthony Crean. So they were fucking devastated. Uh, one of the police officers that responded to the scene said that there were nuns just howling, crying. When he had been killed, like as he was killed and lying there, how many of those ladies 
were there. They weren't, none of them were in his house. They didn't live with him. How many? Oh, none. <laughs> none of them. <laughs> yeah. Yep. We, we can do some more ads right now if you want to. I don't. Okay. I should have said not one. Yeah, but you, but you didn't. <laughs> Nary. Let's be honest. You would have said Nary not one. You would have said not once. Not once. <laughs> now, this is uh, the murder of Anthony Crean is the murder that will bring Patrick McKay to justice. Because when the police get there, they see this guy's head bashed in. They immediately remember an incident from almost two years earlier where a crazy man had broken into Anthony Crean's home and stolen his check. And the reason it stood out is because when they interrogated at the time, then 20-year-old Patrick, he had really scared them during interrogation about the check. He They they knew he was unhinged and crazy. So he kind of stuck out in their mind, and they're like, this is the same guy that had his check stolen from that crazy nut that he was trying to uh, help a little under two years ago. And that's when Patrick Mackay becomes number one suspect. And on March 23rd, 1975, he is detained at his mother's house. And the rest of the story from here kind of uh, goes quickly because Patrick very quickly sings like a songbird. Within an hour of interrogation, he starts confessing to Patrick, to Anthony Crean's murders, to all the murders, uh, 13 murders in total, which included the, the young lady, Heidi. But he also confessed to uh, throwing a drunk homeless man off a bridge into the Thames River in January of 74. Now, this murder was never confirmed. They never found a body. They didn't have a name. He just said, yeah, in January of 74, I threw a drunk homeless man off this bridge because I didn't like because he grossed me out. He was smelled bad. I didn't like looking at him. That's what he said. He's not charged with all these murders, just a few. But they did have enough. To charge him, I believe it was three murders. Probably should have looked that up more. I, I never get into like <laughs> the uh, court stuff. I always just like blah, 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 blah. How much time did he get? You know what I mean? Yeah. But he wasn't charged with all 13 murders. Um, they didn't have proof that he did all of them, but he did provide enough descriptions of the crime scene and what had happened for them to pretty much, they know he did them. At the end of all of it, though, up. Uh, Patrick Mackay was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 20 years to serve. They really threw the book at him. They really let him have it. They're like, you are not going to see a hint of outside at the minimum of 20 years for the 13 murders. Yeah, they're, they're really good with those, you know, really intense sentences. But to be fair... To the UK judicial system, Patrick Mackay is still in prison to this day. Oh. And I don't think he's going to get out anytime soon. It is fun. little fun side note here. In the 90s, Patrick Mackay spent time in Hull Prison, where they had set up a special unit that housed the country's most dangerous offenders. And this is how Charles Mackay ended up being stuck in a cage with the notorious... Charles Bronson. Oh, I was wondering, like his name popped into my head while we were talking about this. What's funny about about this this is I was listening to a podcast when one of them was like, it would be funny if he got stuck with like Charles Bronson. And I was like in my car driving going, he fucking did. He did. (laughs) 
I just wanted them to know so badly that this actually happened, that what they wanted to happen did happen. Because this is important, worth noting, because Bronson, Charles Bronson, by the way, if you don't know who Charles Bronson is, probably the most infamous prisoner in the UK. Yes. Just a real bad boy. Movie done uh, with uh, Ed, Ed, no. Tom Hardy, Hardy played Charles Bronson. Yeah, Hardy. He would get naked and cover himself in grease before he fought guards so that they couldn't, like, get their hand. <laughs> he was slippery. Like, they could- <laughs> Just the real character Bronson was. But the reason I bring this up is because Charles Bronson's favorite pastime while stuck in prison there with Charles Mackay at Hull Prison was beating the fucking dog shit out of Patrick Mackay on the regular. (laughs) It was his favorite thing to do. I've actually got a quote here from Bronson. Charles Bronson was quoted as saying, you know, some days we get lucky and catch him in the shower. He never once fought back. He just screamed like a little girl and rode into a ball on the floor. Up against an 80-year-old woman, he was Tarzan. Oh, yes, a big brave fucker. Facing a man, no, he was a pussy. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's fun. I'm kind of glad to hear that. I'm relieved. I don't know why, but Bronson just seems like a, like a, an anti-villain. Like, you know? He is, yes. <laughs> Like a real life Deadpool, yeah. Only he's, exactly, yeah. Like a real life Deadpool, I guess. I was gonna say only he's never given justice to like truly bad guys, but he has. Right here's a proof of one. Right here, <laughs> yeah. Like if Deadpool had a cool mustache, a, right, a glorious mustache, and <laughs> yeah, a, a, you know, an acceptably standard size penis. <laughs> uh. Yeah, Tom Hardy showed his dick a lot in that movie. He did. He did. And I was kind of, I was, I was comforted. Like a little chicklet. Yeah. I mean, he, maybe he's a grower, though, not a shower. You yeah, never that's know. that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. I like to think that Tom, because in my head, whenever it was inside me, it was like 10 inches. Yeah. Just a beef cannon, right? I mean, that's yeah. what you're hoping. I mean. Yeah. That's Tom Hardy's a beautiful man. Jessica, do you agree? Tom Hardy, yay or nay? She's just shrugging in her She's just like eh. shruggy way. Yeah, he's not a lineman. <laughs> um, <laughs> as of today, y'all, and today is February 22nd, 2023. Patrick Mackay has been in prison for 48 years and is currently the longest serving inmate in the UK. He is wow. right now, today, still alive and 70 years old. And at the moment, he is housed at Layhill Prison in Gloucestershire, England. And that's probably where he'll fucking die. I think it's Gloucestershire. Don't forget to rate and, don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Uh, join our Patreon, 1159 Media. Bye! Don't join the Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> you can find more content, more information, more, more features, more shows, and more content, and more information at 1159plus.com. Rate and bah. rate. <laughs> rate and review on iTunes please thank you bye